Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Welcome to Hollywood and Levine. I am Ken Levine, your podcast host. This week, the topic is basically TV comedy writing because that's pretty much what I've done my entire adult life. We're going to talk today about the realities of being a TV sitcom writer and being on staff. And if you are a young TV sitcom writer, that's the goal. You want to be on staff of a show. It is steady work. There is a modicum of security, and you see your name on TV, and there's also a certain amount of camaraderie. So it pretty much is the goal, but, you know, like every job, there are drawbacks. You know, there are frustrations. There are things that drive you crazy. And so I thought I would talk a little bit about the realities of the situation and give you a better perspective, give you a more balanced look at just what the job entails. I mean, the good news, well, look, you're making money telling jokes, being funny, surrounded by other funny people who are making you laugh, and you're making television shows. You're impressing all of those girls in high school that thought you were just a schmuck. So there are plenty of pluses, but there's also some realities that you need to deal with. And so that's what I thought we would deal with uh, on this edition of Hollywood and Levine. Here's the main thing. You're not just being paid because you're talented, because you're even gifted. You are being paid because, yeah... You're talented and maybe gifted, maybe brilliant, but here's what you got to underline. You are also asked to create on demand. Now, I remember, oh boy, this is like about 20 years ago, but it was a TV commercial and it was one that we made fun of in the writer's room for years. And I remember the product was Swiss Miss, which is some kind of hot chocolate deal and the commercial was this guy going up to this gorgeous cabin the top of a mountain and he lights a fire and he turns on the stove and he gets the swiss miss ready and he sits himself down at the desk and he has this amazing panorama around him this fantastic view and when he's all set he's got the computer he's got that swiss miss then and only then is he able to write is he able to create okay the muse has come and the swiss miss is just warm enough and so he can finally write (laughs) no it is not like that 
at all. And like I said, for years we would make fun of that commercial. You know, we'd be going, oh, where, where's my Swiss Miss? I, I, I have to come up with this, this punchline. No, you have to come in every day, whether you're sick, whether you're aggravated, whether you just got in a car accident, you have to come in and you have to be funny. Now, the key, of course, is discipline. And that's easier for some folks than for others. You know, there are some people who can easily just get up, go to an office or go to your computer at 10 o'clock in the morning and work. And then there are other people who put things off to the last minute or have to work in the middle of the night or have to work in the frozen food section of Gelson's. You have to learn discipline because, like I said, you are expected to turn out work each and every day. You have to write through distractions. I mean, it would be lovely if any time you were in a writing room, it would be quiet or maybe there would be a sound of a lilting waterfall off in the distance. But oftentimes that's not the case. You are assigned a room on the lot or in a building, wherever you are, and there are people walking by, there are distractions. When I was doing Almost Perfect, we had a really nice bungalow on the Paramount lot, and it was great except for one thing. Right across the street was the sawmill. So all day long... You heard saws and hammering. This is where they were making the sets for various shows. So all day long, it was a giant construction site. Plus, they were playing K-Earth, which was an oldies radio station that played only seven records. So you heard Pretty Woman by Roy Orbison and Respect by Aretha Franklin just about every hour until you were ready to blow your brains out. But you had to somehow put that all aside. You know, we could not walk across the street to the sawmill and say, listen, we're riding over here. Could you guys keep it down? No. You have to deal with distractions. You also have to write when you're angry. And this really is the key, and I'll tell you why. Because you're always going to be angry. There is always going to be something that drives you crazy. You're getting notes from the network. You're getting notes from the studio. You have an actor who is acting up. You've got some production problems. All of a sudden, you can't do a scene in a Home Depot-like set. It's going to be too expensive. Instead, you're going to have to do it in a coffee shop. And you're going to have to rewrite and make that work. There will always be things that aggravate you. And you have to somehow rise above them. Notably, when there are actor issues. It's very tough. I tell you, it's human nature. It's just human nature. You have an actor down on the stage who is a giant asshole And you have a great scene that he just shit all over. 
And now you have to go back up to the room and you have to write a different scene knowing that the original scene was way better if the asshole actor would have just embraced it. And so your inclination, of course, is to say, oh, fuck this guy. I'm not going to give him any good jokes. I'll give good jokes to all the other people around him. You just can't do that. You have to put aside your anger and somehow service that actor. And it's not easy. Believe me, it's not easy. I wish I could say to you, yeah, you know, after a year or two, you know, that stuff just kind of, you know, rolls off your back. It doesn't. It doesn't. But somehow you have to get through it. You work long hours and often very, very late into the night. Earl Pomerantz, who, by the way, has a terrific blog you should check out. But Earl Pomerantz worked for years in the MTM factory and at Paramount, a lot of great shows, Mary Tyler Moore, Bob Newhart, et cetera, et cetera. And he had his own show at Paramount at one point called Best of the West. And it was a very long rewrite night, very difficult script. And they took a break and he was walking around the Paramount lot at one o'clock in the morning and he had a great line. He said, you know, there's got to be an easier way of making $300,000 a year. And there's some truth to that, you know? Uh, yeah, it's, it's a great job, but it's hard. So what do you do late at night? How do you get your second wind? Bad idea, drugs. Bad idea, alcohol. Good idea, bananas. That's right, because bananas will help replenish your potassium, which will help recharge you. Now, one time on a show, oh, though, man, I, I still have nightmares thinking about this. Somebody brought in a bag of chocolate-covered coffee beans. You ever heard of these things? They're like M&Ms, but there's coffee beans inside, you know, crunchy coffee beans. And you take one or two, and boy, they're really delicious. And then you take uh, another few and another few. And pretty soon your hand is in the bowl and you're grabbing seven or eight. Well, one time somebody brought in a big bag of chocolate-covered coffee beans, and we went through them in like an hour. This was 6 o'clock at night. At midnight... And we're on page 11, 12. Everyone's head was ready to explode. We were just pinballs, just bouncing off the walls. We were all so nervous and so crazy. We had like 10,000 times the caffeine that any normal human being should have over the course of a year. We had that in the course of an hour. That was one of the worst rewrites ever. So avoid chocolate-covered coffee beans. If for no other reason you are getting something out of this podcast, if you take that tip. There is a lot of pressure, but that's why 
writing rooms can get crazy. People do need to let out steam a little bit. And of course, sometimes it's the laughter that is evoked from this that kind of helps jog you a little bit and helps get you back into a creative mood and back into the script. But in order to make you laugh, oftentimes these jokes are just horrible. Usually you're going for the shock value. And as a result, a lot of these jokes are filthy. A lot of these jokes are absolutely appalling. Nobody is proud of what they're saying in these rooms at two o'clock in the morning, but it's a unique situation and it is a way of comedy writers getting back into the swing of the script and it is something that that they have to do. Now, there are parameters to this, and we can do a whole episode just on this topic alone of what's fair game to make fun of and what is off limits, and especially now with the Me Too movement, etc. I think certain things that were ago about a year or five or ten years ago maybe now are not so acceptable. So that line kind of changes, but still not for the faint of heart. Okay. You cannot have thin skin because sometimes those rooms get really wild. And sometimes everybody in that room is a target. Okay. You're a comedy writer and you walk into a room wearing a new toupee, right? You are going to get shit for the next six months, constantly, constantly, a thousand jokes a day for the next six months. You will be a target. That is just the way one of those rooms work. Now, another way to deal with the pressure is just to remember that it will get done. And if you're in a writing room, you know that you have support. Hopefully you're in a good writing room and there's four or five other people who can come up with that story fix or can have that zinger that gets you out of a scene. It's not all on you. And I think about that a lot now that I'm playwriting because suddenly when I'm at a rehearsal of one of my plays, I look around and there are not seven or eight talented people behind me. It is just me. And that does add a lot more pressure. But generally, you don't have to fix an entire play in one night. You do have to fix a half-hour television show in one night because the cast is going to be there at 9 o'clock the next morning and there needs to be a script. So there's a little less pressure on that end. Also remember, and this is a truism, you're always behind. Just accept it. On your first day of the season... When everybody comes in and talks about what they did on their high, you're behind. That is just 
one of the true laws of nature. People say, what motivates you? Well, honestly, sometimes it's fear. But whatever it is, somehow the job does get done. And I'm telling you, you will look back at some night when you rewrote an entire script, maybe five years ago or 10 years ago, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, if you're lucky enough to be in the business that long, and you'll go, God, how did we do that? How do we write an entire script in eight hours? We staggered out at six o'clock in the morning and the sun was already up. How did we do that? Well, you did. These scripts somehow do get done. But it is also sort of normal to be burned out by the end of the season. I always talk about like the last six weeks of a season that the writers have what I like to call the stare. You know, they're just kind of walking around like zombies. It's really walking dead with red vines. And at the end of the year, sometimes you are pretty fried. And one time my partner David Isaacs and I got to the end of a season, and this was the year that we were doing that ill-fated Mary Tyler Moore show, or as we used to call it, Slaughterhouse Five, the sitcom. We were not only burned out, but we seriously thought that we were done. Now, I go back to the 1950s. There was a show called Mr. Peepers. They did 39 episodes live every single week. And they only had a couple of writers. And one of the writers, after a couple of years of that, basically flipped out. He moved out to Los Angeles. And he spent the next two years in his backyard staring at a tree. This is a true story. He basically got over that in time and went on to write some of the most brilliant half-hour sitcom episodes of the 60s and 70s. So, good news, you can recover from that. But we didn't know that. And maybe he's one of the lucky ones. At the end of that season, we basically just took off for like three months. We just read and went to ball games just like walked around. There were no trees in my backyard, so I couldn't stare at a tree. But we were convinced that this was it for our career. And then after about three months, we got a call from Glenn Les Charles. It was now June. And they said, hey, guys, come on in and we'll give you a script to write. So we thought, well, okay, let's see if we can do this. So we went to the Paramount lot and we met with Glenn and Les and we worked out a story with them. And then we worked out the outline and we turned it in and they said, you know, there's so much story here. It's almost too much story for one episode. So why don't we just expand it and make it a two-parter? And part of us was saying, great, okay, so we're going to have two assignments instead of one. But then the other part was, 
oh my God, I don't know if we could write one episode. I don't know if we could write one page, much less 60 pages now. But of course, we just kind of smiled and said, great. The way David and I work is that the two of us would write head to head. We'd be in the same room together. And we usually worked with a writer's assistant who either took down shorthand or in later years was a whiz on the computer. And we would dictate the scripts. But it meant that there was somebody else in the room. And we said to the Charles brothers, well, we usually have a writer's assistant. And they said, okay, well, just use one of ours. And Les said, and you can use my office because I'm going to be down here in Glenn's office working on other things. So you can use my office. So it's like, great. Okay, so that Monday, I'm driving to the lot and I'm thinking to myself, and I'm being absolutely honest with you here. I'm thinking to myself, you know, there is probably a 50, maybe a 60% chance that David and I are going to sit in that room with a writer's assistant holding a pen at the ready and we're just going to stare at each other. That the only thing going through our brains are going to be white noise and at 11 o'clock in the morning, we are sheepishly going to have to go down to Glenn and Les and say, guys, um, sorry, but we just can't do this. That was a real possibility. So I get to the lot. David and I assemble the writer's assistant who we just met that day. So it's not even like, well, it's, uh, it's a friend of ours. It's somebody who's worked with us for years. No, this is a guy looking at us going, okay, guys, what do you got? And we sat down and like the first few minutes, there was a real lump in my throat and David felt the same way. And we just started dictating interior bar day. Sam is at the bar. Diane enters. Diane says, and we just started pitching and all of a sudden jokes were popping into our head and within about 15 20 minutes we both realized that it was back we were back you know <laughs> the the flow was back and the ideas were popping and it was like superman after they take the kryptonite away from him and his powers slowly start to reappear, that's the way we felt. And I have never in my entire writing career felt a greater relief than that morning when we realized, oh my God, we aren't completely shorted to ground. There is more in the tank and we were able to write two great episodes. And by the way, those were the Never Love a Goalie part one and two episodes of Cheers. That was the, the show that introduced Eddie Lebeck, the hockey goalie, and he and Carla had a relationship, an on-again, off-again relationship. But that was the two-part episode that we wrote 
coming back from our writing coma. It does return. But what do you do if you have writer's block? I mean, a lot of writers will say, yeah, they do from time to time. Most writers will say it's not easy. You know, writing is not easy. And there was like a great line, Kurt Vonnegut, the great author of Slaughterhouse-Five, as this whole thing sort of ties together. But Kurt Vonnegut was in a room full of writers. And they were all complaining about how hard it is and they're just stuck on this particular part and they've had to go back and throw out 15 pages. And one guy said, I love writing. It comes easy to me. I have a great time doing it. I just sit down and just vomit out all of this great stuff. And Kurt Vonnegut said, if you are in a room with writers and one writer says it's really easy, guaranteed he is the worst writer in the room. (laughs) It's very difficult to do, even under the best of conditions. So what do you do if you have writer's block? Well, sometimes just start writing anything. I think I have mentioned this before on my blog, but from time to time, I do an exercise called a one-day play. There is a theater in Santa Monica, California called the Ruskin Theater, and the third Sunday of every month, they have what they call cafe plays. What they do is invite five playwrights. We show up at the theater at 9 o'clock that Sunday morning. We are all given the same topic, like the end of summer or Father's Day, something like that. And we are assigned two actors. We get headshots of two actors. We then have three and a half hours to write a 10-minute play on whatever the topic of the month is. Then the actors and the directors arrive. They take the script that afternoon, they block it, they memorize it, and at 7.30 and at 9 o'clock that night, the shows are performed. And they're cafe plays because they all take place in the same cafe. So you just have a table and a couple of chairs and also a counter. It's a great exercise. It's really fun, but also kind of maddening. And talking to a number of the other playwrights who have done this multiple times, we all seem to say the same thing. When you get the topic and you get the actors, you sit down and you try to come up with an idea. You try to come up with maybe a beginning, middle, and an end, and then start writing it. But if by 9.30 you don't have anything, just start writing. Just give them names, just start writing, and sure enough, uh, eventually a story will emerge. And oftentimes it's really kind of interesting because it's a story that you might not have thought of, you might not have gone down that road had you had the time to really pre-think it and work it out. 
Sometimes when you just start writing, good things will happen. And here's another tip I heard, and from what I understand, this really works. If you have writer's block, sit down in front of your computer or with a pad and pen and start writing about having writer's block. Write about what you are feeling. Write about your frustrations. Write about what it is like. Write about the fear. Write about what you are going through. And oftentimes, just the physical process of writing will unlock you, and that will be the end of writer's block. Or you go up to this cabin, and you set a nice fireplace going, and you look out over this gorgeous vista, just miles and miles of purple mountains, and you make yourself some bracing hot Swiss miss. Okay, there is an overview of what it is like to be on staff, some of the rigors of the job, and also some assurances, some ways of getting you over some of the hurdles. At the end of the day, it's a great job. It really is. It's a lot of fun. And hopefully, if you are an aspiring writer, that you too will get an opportunity to be on staff. That will do it for this edition of Hollywood and Levine. As always, our thanks to Adam and Susie Meister-Butler and to Howard Hoffman. If you want to get in touch with me for any reason, easily done. HollywoodLevine at Outlook.com is my email address. HollywoodLevine at Outlook.com. I sure would uh, appreciate a five-star review on iTunes. That always makes me happy. And uh, you can follow me on Twitter, at Ken Levine. Also on Instagram, Hollywood and Levine. Okay, so I got all the plugs out of the way. Done for the week. Thanks so much for listening. Talk to you next week. Bye-bye. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader.